Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. In today's episode, we will be hearing chapter 30 of Genesis. Like in the previous chapter, there are various elements that clue us into key biblical lessons, which we will of course point out, but we shouldn't get lost in the weeds of it all. In this book of the Bible, the scriptures are presented as a story, and that is how we should hear it, as a story. That being said, at this point in the story, the behavior of the characters Leah and Rachel is being compared in the very first verse of today's chapter. For the sake of those listeners who are not hearing this episode immediately after last week's, I will read the closing passage of chapter 29 before reading the opening passage of this one. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So I hope the parallelisms here are obvious. The story is a reflection of the story which details Abraham and Sarah struggled to have their own children earlier in the book of Genesis. Like Blaze said in our last episode, these parallelisms are a literary method of communicating correct and incorrect behavior on behalf of the characters. In these parallel stories, the one who is able to produce children, Leah, is hated, just like Hagar was hated by Sarah. The slave of the wife is forced into a marriage centered around producing progeny on behalf of the female slave master, which is Rachel in this story, and Sarah in the former story. We even have the same vocabulary from that former story, where Sarah, the wife, is declaring that it is through the slave that she will bana or build progeny for herself, 
And that's a key detail. We can't miss that whenever the text is indicating this connection to building buildings and the city. It is negative. So for a woman to use another human being to build something for their own ego, their own gain, that's bad news. And of course, like many things in our English translations, we totally miss that. It just says, so that I may have children through her. But she isn't seeking to have children for the sake of being a mother. She is seeking to build something. It's even more exaggerated than Abraham's situation, because instead of one wife, we get three at the moment, and soon to be four once we get Zilpah in the mix. Interestingly, Jacob is angered by the situation because he knows that it is God who controls the progeny and not him. Jacob is a very complicated character, but in this instance he recognizes God's complete prerogative to progeny. It's also interesting that, unlike Abraham, Jacob has shown no interest in obsession with that progeny. His only obsession is, thus far, to be married to Rachel. He doesn't even seem bothered by Rachel's infertility. The names of Bilhah's children to Jacob are also interesting. One of them is named Dan, which connotes judgment, and the other is Naphtali, meaning my wrestling. The first name is incredibly ominous. According to Rachel, God has judged her but given her a son. This is demonstrably untrue. While she is correct in the fact that God has judged her, Dan was not a gift from God but was conceived through the action of Rachel having Jacob sleep with Bilhah. This becomes even more weighty with the introduction of Naphtali, which connotes a, a deep competition with her sister Leah. The Hebrew is actually quite muddled in the English translation. Let's have a look at the original. So we have Watomer um, Rachel, and Rachel said, Naphtuli Elohim. And this is kind of interesting. So this gets left out of a lot of uh, translations, but we have that word Elohim at the end. Yeah, the English seems to be interpreting the word Elohim as if it were an adjective, which is a bit bizarre in my opinion. The issue likely stems from confusion surrounding the verb patal and its conjugations. Long story short, due to our affinity for the Masoretic preservation of the texts and, of course, their vowel pointing, and due to the fact that much of our understanding of scriptural Hebrew itself comes from that very system, translators view this as a noun in the first-person possessive rather than a functional verb. However, it could be argued due to vowel similarity and the singular occurrence of this word in the Old Testament text that it's some sort of passive participle in the Nifal stem. I certainly will accept the challenge on that because participles in the Nifal don't normally appear specifically in this way, nor are there necessarily passive participles in any of the stems other than Cal, but it does share similar vowel patterns with passive participles in the Cal stem. On top of that, the Nifal system itself is typically passive, in meaning, so it could be to double down on the fact that Rachel is the receiver of the action and is taking no agency. That would make sense in the story, because if this is a plural participle, the lack of the typical masculine plural mem ending indicates that it's either first-person possessive, so to say God has twisted me, or it is showing that the verb is functioning as a noun in the construct state attached to the word Elohim, thus indicating that Rachel is saying, my wrestledness is of God or more literally, my twistedness is of God, because that root verb patal more so indicates pressurized twisting than the back and forth of like a wrestling match. 
Either way, it is roughly the same point being communicated. I think these translations that I've come up with are still subject to scrutiny, but at the very least, it fits within the concepts of the story, and it doesn't remove an entire word from the original text, such as Elohim in this example. This interpretation would then follow the pattern established already by the descriptions of Rachel's previous son through Bilhah. What I mean is that in verse 6, it starts with, God has judged me in the Hebrew and that follows through in the English translation. So it would logically follow that in verse 8, with Rachel's second son through Bilhah, it would say, God has twisted me, which makes sense because there is some semantic consistency. Whereas with the other option that the ESV presents, you lose that semantic consistency. Another interesting note is that the Septuagint has keipen rahil sina laveto miotheos, which is interesting because of the word sinalaveto, which is the word that the Septuagint authors used to translate naftuli. Sinalaveto is constructed from sin, which refers to something being together. This is the same root from which we get synagogue from, uh, which of course is a gathering of sorts. And then that is combined with the Greek verb lamvano, which means to receive or to take. So literally, it would mean to receive together, but in context, this word more so has the connotation of seizing or laying hold of. If you dig a bit deeper, it has several uses throughout the Septuagint to refer to conception in a general sense. And that's fascinating because there's certainly an explicit struggle with the verb naftuli. Uh, but in Greek, the struggle is suggested by the construction of the word, but it's also used in places where one wouldn't expect it. So what's the point? Rachel feels a sense of victory against her struggle with God, but she feels that she has outsmarted him by having children through her concubines. This is totally lost in, in English, but it couldn't be more explicit in the Hebrew. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. If I may go on an aside, one thing that I think we have to keep in mind is that the biblical authors were very intelligent and the culture they came out of is historically renowned for its storytelling capabilities through the metrics of language and creative use of language. Normally in our podcast, I refer to it as Semitic culture and ancient Semitic culture, um, but we could even call it Arab culture, though that term Arab uh, is a bit muddled as far as the way we use that term to describe a group of people and a group of historic people. But throughout history, it seems that even the word Arab refers to city-dwelling people, and nomadic people, both of which are characterized by their unique ability to pass wisdom on through storytelling. So all of these things are deeply ingrained in the writing of Scripture, and they flow through the very blood of Scripture from the people that produced the Scripture. And we see it in the Old Testament Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures. We see it in the Quran. It all comes from this uh, unified people that, you know, sort of paradoxically have been historically disunified post their exposure to empire. And I don't want to get on too far of a tangent, but I say these things 
because I don't want it to be lost on us that the stories in the Bible are nuanced and complex because the very culture of people were master storytellers. The authors are intelligent, and any honest reading of the text would lead one to deduce as much. The comparisons between characters are subtle, and the implications of characters' actions are nuanced. It's not black and white, infantile storytelling, like your Winnie the Pooh books, your Dr. Seuss books. You know, it's much more complex than that, and it's important that we refer to it as being complex, because it's not complicated. Complicated would infer unintelligence. Complexity would infer intelligence. And that is the Old Testament scripture. It is extremely complex, and it is very intelligently crafted. So when we read these stories, we should feel tension, we should feel inner conflict as we try to grapple with the things that we're hearing. But we have to have patience, because when the entire story has unfolded, as long as we haven't become distracted by all of our emotional reactions to the story or our moral philosophical reactions to the story, it will all make sense, because it is written to make sense. It is not written to be confusing. It is written complexly to communicate a very specific concept and lesson in totality. So its complexity likewise contributes to that fact, that when you walk away from the total text, if you haven't been distracted uh, by all of your inner inklings, which of course is very difficult to do, then you can't misunderstand the text. You can't leave with a false understanding as long as your approach was correct. Now, what exactly does that approach need to be? That would be an entirely separate tangent. So for the sake of brevity, I will get back to the text and, and keep chugging along with what we're doing today. But we need to keep all of these things in mind, especially when we come to difficult passages, passages that we don't necessarily understand upon first reading. So how should we treat the rivalry between Leah and Rachel? Again, it's not black and white. We can't categorize their actions into clearly defined moral boxes. Last episode, I talked a lot about Leia's miniature character arc and how it illustrated her recognition of God as the sole authority and the primary concern of the human person, and that's a good deal. But now, she seems to be back in the weeds of competing with her sister Rachel for Jacob's favor. Now that Leia can no longer produce children, she gives over her slave Zilpah to Jacob, and he has his way with her, producing more children. There is nuance, however, because in the character interactions with Leia, Zilpah, and Jacob, the connotations of the children's names are positive, whereas Rachel's children, through Bilhah, had negative connotations attached to their names. So we can't really draw clear distinctions like we want to. That's philosophy, right? Drawing clearly defined lines in the abstract voids of the human psyche, and those lines are so convoluted, very little can ever actually be gleaned and applied that wouldn't just be considered common sense in the first place. Scripture is not written within these philosophical parameters that we are so accustomed to in the post-Enlightenment West. There is nuance, and it is unlikely that the authors are always attempting to teach clearly distinguished moral and religious concepts in their stories. They are simply telling a story, and that doesn't mean that there's not a point to it. There are things to be learned in the totality, but in one contained story, the character interactions are complex and hazy as far as what is right and wrong from a scriptural purview. 
So we just have to hear it and pay our respects to the wise authors who wrote it and hear what they have to say. One interesting note about the dichotomy between Rachel and Leah is when Rachel has children, she does so out of rivalry. Thus, the names of her children are negative. Leah, on the other hand, expresses joy. Gad refers to good fortune, and Asher refers to happiness. It'll be interesting to see how these names affect the storylines of these characters throughout the scriptural story, since they will be the name bearers of the Israelite tribes. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. This passage is one that I think probably confuses a lot of us. I confess that I certainly was confused at first. The translation of mandrake comes from the Septuagint. The original Hebrew is the word dudai and has the connotation of love fruit. The Septuagint rendered this as mandragoras, and the Vulgate followed suit with a similar translation, and thus we have the English mandrake. It makes sense within the story because a mandrake is the root of a plant, uh, and when eaten, it acts as an aphrodisiac and sometimes hallucinogenic. It is possible, if I may speculate a little bit, that these aphrodisiacs in this ancient Semitic culture and worldview had less to do with getting, quote-unquote, in the mood, if you will, you know, raising libido, and more to do with fertility. I don't have any archaeological or literary evidence to support this currently, other than the biblical text we have here, but it seems reasonable. From a quick Google search, it seems that there are a few aphrodisiacs throughout history that boost both libido and fertility in men and or women. So my idea isn't that bizarre. But considering the text, Reuben, the firstborn and oldest son of Jacob, out of service to his mother, brings the mandrakes to Leah, who is now barren. Rachel, who is barren and still has not had children of her own, wants them for herself. So it makes sense. They're both barren. You know, they can't produce children anymore. And they both desire these mandrakes. So it makes sense to think, then, that Rachel wants these mandrakes for the sake of her own fertility. And that's why she's trying to strike this deal. The rest of it is still a bit confusing. Leah makes a deal with her sister wife that seems to suggest that Rachel normally lays with Jacob at night, which would make sense since she is his favorite. Leah sleeps with Jacob that night, but tells him about it through the details of the deal she made with Rachel. I suppose that perhaps the narrator is cluing us in on something the characters don't seem to be aware of. Through the dealings between Leah and Rachel, aimed at Leah securing a place in Jacob's bed that night, there is a certain degree of imagery suggesting the phenomenon of prostitution. Now, I'm not saying that is exactly what is happening. Leah is not a prostitute. She is the wife of Jacob. However, the inner workings of this situation do seem to suggest the concept of prostitution, right? Selling something desirable in exchange for sex, whether it be to produce children or simply for the act of sex. Here, it seems to be for producing children. It's not a peaceful situation, right? This family dynamic between Jacob and his wives, 
Uh, and we are supposed to see that. God hears Leah and she conceives again. Once again, she recognizes God as the sole authority over her womb, calling this son Issachar, which is a play on the Hebrew word sakar for wages, citing the fact that she gave her servant to Jacob and Leah's continued fertility is God's wages paid to her. And this is kind of interesting. If the mandrakes are to encourage fertility, it is striking that Leah gives away the mandrakes to somebody else and, despite previously being barren, has a child because God heard of the situation and, you know, as is in God's character in the Old Testament, he subverts uh, the hearer's expectations. So if that was the understanding of Mandrake, it is telling of God's character. Uh, Once again, he is subverting the agency that humans are taking with their own hands to produce the outcome that they desire, and he is producing the outcome that he desires, which here happens to be Leah having children. So Leah has a sixth son named Zebulun, which probably is a reference to her desire for Jacob to Zabal, or exalt and honor her as the fruitful wife, giving him progeny because of God's Zebed, or gift, of childbearing. Considering her character development through these last two chapters, it is important to point out that the word choice here seems to suggest that she is not saying this out of desperation like in the past, but more with an air of affirming conclusion, such as, surely now he will honor me, because the Hebrew word pa'am for now in this sentence has that connotation and literally refers to the stamping of a foot as one would do when the tension of suspense has been relieved. It's like baking a cake and checking it when the timer goes off only to find it's not fully baked. So you bake it a little longer, it's still not done. You go a couple more minutes, still not done. You go one more minute, still not done. You go one more minute, and then it's finally finished cooking. And you feel that satisfaction. Now, it's finished. Leah has a daughter named uh, Dinah, which is a pretty bad pronunciation in English, but we'll go with it. And this is the feminine form of the Hebrew word din for to judge which is the same root that Rachel's servant son, Dan's name, comes from. So there seems to be some sort of connection between them, uh, but this is the kind of thing that we shouldn't skip out on. We shouldn't skip over this. Both of these sister wives each have a child whose name is derived from the root, meaning to judge. So we should keep that in mind. And this will be important to remember for later because Dina will represent judgment in a powerful way in a few chapters down the line. Whenever the Hebrew text labors to mention the daughters by name, it is always important since this was outside of the custom of the time. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Finally, Rachel has a child of her own, and we are introduced to Joseph, whose name means to add. Joseph is a super fascinating character in the book of Genesis and ends up being the focal point for the story towards the end. In fact, out of all the protagonists we've been following, Joseph has by far the most screen time out of any of them. It's also interesting that he is the son of Rachel, whose name refers to the ewe lamb. Joseph functions very much like the Raham we've talked about in episodes prior, which is the emaciated lamb Isaac functions as previously in the story. Joseph is also notable later for being Jacob's favorite son, Partially, perhaps, because he is Rachel's. And that is but one of the many creative elements about his character that drives home even more how scripturally obedient he is. 
He is the elevated son, Jacob's favorite, and the child of the wife with the highest status in the household. Typically, characters with so much to lose are often the most devious. But just like Abraham, the lofty father, the exalted father, was called away from his lofty status, Joseph will leave his station of high status to function under God's directive. It's brilliant, because all throughout this, we have been developing sympathy toward Leah and disdain toward Rachel. Therefore, Rachel's child will be held in low status, according to the purview of the reader. But scripture has other plans. The child of the rivaling woman, the woman tangentially responsible for her sister receiving so much hatred and pain, is the child that scripture follows as an example of salvation and mercy toward all people, which likely flies in the face of the reader who empathizes with the lowly hated character of Leah and has remorse toward the one with power and influence, Rachel, and through Rachel, her children. Whether or not that was the intent of the author, I don't know. But what I do know is that scripture uses all sorts of different kinds of characters and themes and patterns in order to subjugate all people of every sort of station so that they all will submit to the aegis of the instruction that is revealed through the stories. Again, it is a brilliantly crafted story. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given to you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You should not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. One of the moments that is instantly suspect in this passage is when Laban refers to divination. This alone should raise eyebrows, but the fact that the Hebrew has nehashti is rather suspect as well. This is the same root from which Nahash, the serpent, derives from. So this quote-unquote divination is calling us back to the cunningness of the serpent in Genesis 3, which is appropriate for the situation because Laban is the most Mesopotamian character we've come across so far. His name is literally evocative of the building materials for the Tower of Babel. So for him to derive knowledge from God from this crafty divination is inherently a very pagan activity. The Greek has ionisamin, which has the connotation of taking omens, especially from birds. So Laban is claiming messages from God by his own mental effort. In other words, he's essentially a theologian, and that's not a good thing. 
So that alone should tell us that his premise is fundamentally flawed. Yeah, exactly. This quote-unquote divination is intrinsically connected to the concept of dialogue or, like Blaise said, observing supposed divine symbols and interpreting them based on human intellect. Its connection to the serpent is that the serpent hisses, and the one who nachash, or does divination, is hissing in dialogue, back and forth, with the divine being, or themselves, or the people around them. The serpent dialogued with the woman in order to lead her to a conclusion that was not in accordance with God's very simple commandment. That's the real issue. Laban is claiming to have performed divination to get information from Yahweh. He is a smooth talker, nothing else. No one dialogues with God, not even our scriptural protagonists. They may ask questions, they may twist his words, but no one dialogues with God. God speaks, and you either listen or you don't. Dialogue and divination suggest equality between each party, and no one is equal with God. This is one of the many places in scripture that critique our modern Christian cultures. We say, quote-unquote, I spoke with God today in my prayer time. You did what? That, my friend, is divination. The only thing we can do with God is listen. It is Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Not, speak with me, O Israel. Hear the difference. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there, so the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. Here, Jacob is further demonstrating the meaning of his name by finagling Laban's wealth away from him. In essence, the sheep in this passage reflect the behavior of Jacob regarding Laban's daughters. The sheep with the imperfections are stand-ins for Leah, with Rachel being the pure and spotless ewe lamb. Yeah, Laban tries to swindle Jacob, and Jacob swindles Laban. It's pretty obviously bad news, and it should inform the way that we hear the development of the nation of Israel in the coming stories. Hear verse 43 again, and the way it parallels the use of this semantic, this phrase, from past stories. It says, Thus the man, Jacob, increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. We've heard of Isaac and Abraham doing exactly that same thing, increasing greatly and having large flocks, female servants, male servants, etc., etc. But when they did it, when they increased greatly and received all these things, it was typically after an event of communion with a neighboring people group or a neighboring nation. However, here for the first time, the person who is increasing greatly in this lineage, Jacob, is doing it purely 
by the work of his own hands and explicitly through his beguiling. Abraham was a little beguiling. Isaac was a little beguiling, lying about their wife being their sister and sort of trapping the people that they were close to into a rough deal. But it was clear in those stories that their increase was a product of God's agency over the situation. Whereas here, God isn't present in this last interaction. Jacob is working to con Laban out of strong, healthy sheep. And Jacob is getting the strong, healthy sheep for himself. Again, by his cleverness, remember his arum, his craftiness, he's smooth-skinned. So that's the story. The namesake of all Israel is not a mighty king who was suddenly blessed by God in the land God directed him to. He's a con man who left the land promised to him to acquire wealth by his own hands and beguiling nature, stealing his family members' inheritance. That is what the text is saying. That is the story. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.